tuhia ki te rangi, tuhia ki te whenua, tuhia ki te ngākau o ngā tangata katoa, ko te nui, ko te aroha. Uh, he mihi tuatahi ki te atua, te kaihano ngā mea katoa. Uh, te tai pō rātou ki a rātou, te tai awatea tātou ki a tātou. Uh, I ngā whānau o St. Albans Baptist, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. I ngā manuhiri, i haere mai ki tēnei whare i te atu nei, uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Ko Nairi Buttonahau, uh, no Ngāti Purau, Mungai Tuhoe. Um, kia ora everybody, um, my name's Nairi and I'm a member of the um, church here and it's my privilege and honour this morning to welcome um, Alistair, our speaker, um, no my hare mai, Alistair. Um, Alistair is, um, there's really too much to put in a, in a simple introduction but he's a scholar, he's, um, has degrees in theology and history and in Māori studies has written an awesome thesis on identity. He's a fluent speaker of Te Reo and um, has served Fano Māori for a long time. And his and his Christian journey has been a pastor, and uh, and also um, a great supporter of Parihaka. So some of many of you were here last night to see the Parihaka movie, and Alice has been um, for at least eighteen years that I know of a regular attender at their monthly hui. And so um, it's, a, it's a real privilege for us to be able to hear from Alistair and the things that he's learned and the things that he understands of Māori, me te Pākehā, me te, me te um, Hapiti, me te church. Um, kia ora, Alistair. such a privilege to have Alistair here with us. Um, Donald Scott and I were uh, dreaming this up right back at the beginning of the year and uh, he highly recommended um, Alistair to, to me. And I've met Alistair for um, maybe half an hour of conversation from last night and already uh, I would say this is a man I want to listen to who I, who I uh, know that I'm um, able to share things with, um, just from simply conversation. In fact, Alistair, I, I would say that you are a treasure um, for our country because of the way you've invested your life um, into uh, the bicultural journey, understanding it as a, as a Pākehā and um, uh, coming alongside and modelling something that um, is, is reaping huge fruit, and I know you're going to talk all about that. But I just, I just want to say, friends, open your heart. I, I believe that God is going to speak through Alistair today. The thing that I love as much as anything else about um, pursuing a multicultural uh, and, and this bicultural journey is that it's for right now. There are things that we can take and we can walk out in the right now. So I want to just pray. Father, I ask that you will um, help Alistair. God, his problem is probably what not to say rather than what to say. Thank you that you're going to use him. And I pray, Lord, that into our hearts you will sow seeds of things that are so practical, so loving, so respectful, so possibility-wise. So I just ask you to grace him as he speaks to us now in Jesus' name. And everybody said? 
Amen. Brother John. Are you able to put the slides on the screen? Yeah. Oh, good. Awesome. Let's see how I go with this technology. Glory to God. Uh, peace on earth and to all of you that are here today. May God's goodwill uh, be among you. Ko katuna te awa, ko rangiuri te maunga, ko himalaya te waka, ko waitangi te kawanata, ko ihu karaiti te tangata metiatua ki hei Māori ora. I just nominated uh, some of the geographic locations of where I come from. I come from the Bay of Plenty in the rohi of um, the iwi of Tapuika. I nominated the waka that my eponymous ancestors came here in 1867 to this city, in fact. So the Reese um, family originally settled here, spread out. And then I talked about Watangi being the covenant, and that's what I will be talking about today. And Jesus Christ, who is both the man and the and our God. Kahuriatu ki ngā mana whenua, ki kone, ngā tahu, ngā te mamoi, mea wataha hoki. I just acknowledge the mana whenua of this district. <coughs> ki a koutou, ngā mata waka, ki wanganui, i a tātou, e tēnei wā, to all the different waka that are here. Ki ngā tangata tiriti hoki, to those of you of the treaty. Mea ngā haue whaa. Uh, so all of you that belong to the treaty and those of you that are maybe visitors from overseas I greet you e te rangatera, John, uh, tēnā koe uh, ki a koutou te hapuri of um, St Albans um, tēnā koutou katoa he tūno harako te ngākau ki o taimai ki kone i tēnei ata tēnā koutou katoa mō tō pauhiri ki au Thank you very much for your welcome to me and, and for taking the risk of having me in your midst. And as John's already said, he doesn't really know me very well. So um, it, who knows what can happen. Um, I just... Uh, um, you're a community, a community of God's people. In Māori we say hapore. Um, I just want to, I don't know why it is that we, I, there's no pressure here, you sit up the back. Uh, I want to be communicating with you and among you this morning. So, you know, if you're really brave, you could actually come down here. <laughs> I tell you, I'm not going to bite you. <laughs> yeah, okay, don't be brave then. Um, I want to just acknowledge the musical director among you. Uh, beautiful to see the voices uh, that are at the forefront. Can hear the words. <laughs> Don't ever underestimate the power of, of the human voice. Um, 
Also, I want to acknowledge the journey that you guys are on. Uh, I've heard a little bit about you, and I just want to acknowledge the leadership here that uh, you've embraced something. And it's, uh, it can be a bumpy ride. It's a long journey. And I'm talking about what? I'm actually talking about understanding the purposes of God in this land, what is unique uh, about God's sovereign purposes, what is in his heart to achieve, particularly in this area of reconciliation uh, between peoples. So John has asked me this morning to speak about reconciliation. And um, so that's really what I wanted to do. So as, as he alluded to, I'm a, a, I'm a theologian and a historian and a farmer. Um, a bit of an unusual mix, so my wife is at home with uh, my daughter and we have a, a kiwi fruit orchard and we run some sheep and some cattle and some chooks and uh, a few other things and I do a bit of writing and a bit of speaking all around really that I guess the key passion of my heart is really seeking to understand what it is the Lord is doing in this land, that's, that's the things that really grab me and and most of it's an inquiry, and I have a few thoughts about it. And so that's what I will be um, giving to you today, some thoughts around this issue of reconciliation in the land. This is, um, in substance, it's taken a little bit from a thesis I did some years ago, a PhD thesis around Pākehā identity. And it's around the issues of um, how do we belong as a Pākehā in a colonised land. And so that's the substance of what it was. And so I want to um, bring you some ideas about reconciliation, which is, it's a long word, actually, but it's one of the main themes of the New Testament. And I think it's one of the key uh, missional drivers of the Spirit of God, is to bring people not only into a reconciliatory position with God, but also into a reconciliatory position uh, with each other. And reconciliation, I've likened to a giant uh, jigsaw puzzle. It's full of lots of little pieces. And it, it's, it's not just, you know, a one-size-fits-all. It's not just, oh, just do one thing and we're reconciled. It is a multi-complex uh, cosmic adventure, actually, because at the end of the day, as uh, Paul wrote in Colossians, that's the end goal of God, is to reconcile all things in Christ Jesus. So whether on heaven or on earth below, that's the, that's the goal of God, to reconcile all things. I want to bring you uh, and start off with the scripture. Most of the time today I will be speaking kind of um, history, location, stuff. So I won't be spending a lot of time in the scriptures, but I want to start off there because it's actually f fundamental to the inspiration that I've had around finding reconciliatory positions for us. And it's probably, you might think, this is an unusual um, scripture to start off with, um, and it's probably not one that's expounded on a great deal in terms of the, the political realm. But it says, um, Paul says, To the married I give this command, uh, not I but the Lord, a, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now there's an assumption in there that in order to be reconciled to her husband, and I would say it would work both ways, 
what the wife has to do is to return to the covenant. It's not actually a matter of works. It's not actually a matter of doing a whole lot of stuff. In the first instance, it's returning to the covenant. And the Greek actually explains that that is a reconciled state. So I call that a kind of a, a, um, a structural reconciliation. Of course, there's a lot of other uh, what I, small R's to carry on in the midst of a broken relationship, but the key issue there is returning to the covenant. And incidentally, that is actually the structure of the gospel. The gospel uh, gives to us a covenant which we are invited into, and we are, it's a free gift of God, and all we do is actually, in a sense, just say yes, and we enter into that covenantal arrangement, and we are said to be reconciled with God. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to the story of how we should we then live, uh, and we will talk about that late, later on. Uh, but really, that's my position here. I'm wanting to suggest if we're interested in the reconciliation, particularly between Māori and Pākehā, there is a structural possibility of this reconciliation and not merely a, uh, a, a activity of works, which means doing all kinds of things to be reconciled. Okay? I will show that that's something that comes later. So let's go on this little adventure and we're going to be looking at the Treaty of Waitangi and I'm really thrilled to hear that John has already done a lot of work with you on that in case you're already going a bit ho-hum on this. I'm not going to talk a lot of detail about the articles and the details, etc. This is really an overview of, of, of something that has this reconciliation uh, in mind. In 1934... Our, one of our Governor-Generals, his name was uh, Lord Bledisloe, he made a gift to the nation. And it's a very ironic thing because what happened was that the treaty grounds of Waitangi, where, where the uh, treaty house and where the Waitangi uh, was signed, had come into private ownership. It had actually come into Lord Bledisloe's ownership. And so in a profound act, he actually gave back this land to the nation. And one of the things he said at that time was, let Waitangi be to us all a tatoponamu. Now the word tatoponamu means it's a, a sacred doorway or a greenstone doorway, literally. It's a, a Māori uh, way of actually um, metaphorically referring to how people can be reconciled to each other in their world. So what he was saying is, I'm really offering this place to you as a nation, and I'm hoping that this will be a doorway of uh, reconciliation to you all. There is a very underestimated understanding, I think, about the uh, treaty, and one of the things, the reasons for that is it's often been a one-sided uh, understanding. Māori have been involved with walking and living and thinking and talking about the treaty since 1840. It might be a strong generalisation, but I think it has an element of truth to it that my family, we as Pākehā, have neglected to talk about it for a long, long, long time. 
and we are just getting up to speed to talk about it. And so our understanding is quite juvenile, may I use that term. So I want to read uh, this as a, as a beginning, as an introduction for those of you that are, that are not Māori. This is uh, Judge uh, Eddie Taihakuri Juri, who was a chief court judge, and he said, and he's talking at a Māori assembly, he says, we must not also forget that the treaty is not just a Bill of Rights for Māori, it is a Bill of Rights for Pākehā too. It is the treaty that gives Pākehā the right to be here. He's talking about morally being here. Without the treaty, there would be no lawful authority for the Pākehā presence in this part of the South Pacific. We must remember that if we are the Tangata Whenua, the original people, then the Pākehā are the Tangata Tiriti, those who belong to the land by the right of the treaty. To honour our forebears, then, we as Māori must never challenge, threaten, compromise or prejudice the rights of Pākehā to be here. We cannot claim our own rights if we do not respect the rights of others. So I think that's a very important thing for us to understand, that, uh, that, it, that the treaty is just not a Māori thing, it's actually a thing for everybody, everybody in the land, whether you're Pākehā or non-Pākehā. So, very basic background uh, to the treaty. As you know, the treaty was signed uh, in 1840 uh, between the British Crown and Māori. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Hobson was the representative uh, from the British Crown. Ultimately, it was signed throughout the Motu by 512 uh, chiefs, both uh, men and women. Uh, it was mediated, translated, and propagated by CMS missionaries. Now, CMS was the Church Missionary Society, the, basically the Anglican mission arm that first came to New Zealand to proclaim the gospel. Uh, these, they were the first point of contact, the Church Missionary uh, Society missionaries, for Maori in the north who were having to cope with uh, the, the major problems of large numbers of settlers coming from Europe they turned to the missionaries and said, can you help us? We, there's something going on here that is going to cause uh, great problems and things are a little bit out of control. So the missionaries became the mediators between Māori, particularly in the north, and also the crown back in England. And I think you've heard something about that, about the uh, Clapham sect and about the, the involvement of, of, dif of different missionaries in that process. But essentially, what I'm wanting to uh, state up front is that it's because of the strong relationship between Māori, rangatira, and the, and the missionaries uh, that this uh, process of the treaty came to be. So it came out of... Uh, the uh, evangelical revival of George Whitfield uh, and uh, John Wesley and the Clapham sect were as a result of that and the people of the Clapham sect were back in England and they helped form and frame the idea of a treaty with indigenous peoples that was different than what, how they had colonised places in the past. So the message came here to New Zealand ultimately through, um, to, uh, through Hobson to say we want to strike a treaty so who did they contact? They contacted the missionaries. The missionaries then contacted the rangatira and said, there's a, there's a, a treaty coming up. Can you come? Uh, and they helped gather the people uh, up in the north at Paihia, Waitangi. And the, the rangatira 
uh, responded to that invitation to come on the 5th of uh, February, 1840, because of the invitation of the people whom they trusted. So the, the, uh, the treaty was given in the hands of James Busby, the British resident, and some of the, and Henry Williams and his son, and they translated it, and then they put it forward to the uh, assembled chiefs and said, hey, this is uh, the deal that, that the Crown wants to do with you. So they translated it, and then they explained it, and then they helped respond to the questions of all the different chiefs in that place, that, um, to all the questions that they had about it. Ultimately, it got over the line, and the chiefs signed it. And then from there, it was taken to several other places around the Motu, around the islands. And who was it that took that uh, treaty around the different places? It was our spiritual forefathers. I think there is only one place where that treaty was signed around the country that wasn't uh, sponsored by church missionaries. So they were very uh, involved in what I call the mediation of the treaty, the Tiriti of Waitangi, uh, with with Māori. <clears throat> Claudia Orange, who is our foremost historian, I think, on the, um, on the treaty issue, says, the role of the English missionary in determining Māori understanding was crucial. It determined that Māori would understand the treaty as a special kind of covenant with the Queen, a bond with all the spiritual connotations of the biblical covenants. There would be many tribes, including the British, but all would be equal unto God. She says, the treaty was, was secured simply because many Māori trusted the missionaries' good intentions. Let me just briefly uh, highlight, as I said, I'm not going to go into all the articles of the treaty, which I know that many of you will have read. I want to highlight just one. The second article, which says, <clears throat> the Queen agrees to protect the chiefs and the unqualified exercise of their chieftainship over their lands. That was Article 2 and, uh, I guess, a, 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 a key cornerstone of the treaty. The other thing that I want to just give our reference to is what um, Hobson said at the end of the signing. He shook each of the chief's hands and he said, iwi tahi We are now one people. Right, And I'll come back to that uh, statement a little bit later on. So the treaty was signed, as I said, mediated by the uh, missionaries. What was the result of that treaty signed in 1840, particularly around Article 2 and the preservation of the chiefs and their control of their lands? I've used these maps because I think they explain very graphically what was the result uh, of the signing of the treaty, particularly for Māori. If you look at the top left one there, you see uh, the, the North Island shaded in black uh, and 20 years after the signing, and treaty, sorry, the signing of the treaty. The black uh, signifies how much land was under con uh, Māori control for their identity and their economic base. The second one is from 1890, and the one on the, on the right uh, goes to uh, 1910, and the bottom one there on the bottom right signifies 100 years later how much land was under Māori control in the North Island. Now, for you in the South Island, it was much simpler. 
in saying that, I'm, I, want to, I want to acknowledge that I'm talking about some quite complex things around this land transference and that and obviously in a setting like this I can't go into all the details of the hows and the wherefores, etc., etc. But this is the end result. Within a few years, the South Island was completely gone to Māori. There were just small pockets left of, this, of the total South Island through the various dealings uh, that took place. So that really was the end result uh, of, this, of the signing uh, of the treaty, particularly uh, for Māori. Now what happened was that there had been this, I would call it a revival uh, amongst Māori, particularly the, the post-1830s. In Māori, uh, 60 or 70% of their uh, population had become converted and not only become converted but changed their lifestyle and also became very erudite in understanding the scriptures. Uh, and they were very talented in, in uh, some of their um, speaking and exegesis and ex expositions. Now, one of the chief motifs that came out of that period was this uh, motif uh, called Nabos Vineyard. Now, most of you will know the, the story of Nabos Vineyard, and it became the story that many Māori adopted when they made their entreating to the crown because they thought the crown was a Christian crown. They thought, if we can show them something that is biblically shown to be unjust and we can entreat them with this, surely we will get a response. You know, just very briefly, the Naboth's vineyard, for those that don't know it, there was a, a little vineyard owned by Naboth, uh, and there was a king and a queen called Ahab and Jezebel, and Ahab really wanted this vineyard, so he shoots down to Naboth and he says, can I buy your vineyard off you. Naboth responds to him and says, far be it for me to give the inheritance of my ancestors. So Naboth was really upset. He goes back to the palace and the Bible tells us he's moping around the palace and Jezebel says to him, what's up dear? And he says to her the story, Naboth wouldn't give him the vineyard, etc. And he, uh, she says to him, leave it with me. She goes down to the village and she frames Naboth with the elders Long story short, he gets stoned to death and Ahab takes over the vineyard, right? Ultimately, though, the story doesn't end there. You'll see if you read further in the story, there's some judgment of God upon the household of Ahab and Jezebel. But what I'm wanting to show here is that in the, many of these districts, there was this very strong sense of Christian indignation amongst Māori by the treatment uh, of their land. I'm suggesting at this stage that this was a broken covenant, that the covenant that was signed in 1840 was broken. Where was the church in this? Where was the church that mediated this covenant? In my research, I come to the conclusion that the church was largely silent. From about 1860 onwards, almost up to about, I'd say, mid-80s or to 1980s to the 1990s, the church, for various reasons, absented themselves from this conversation 
uh, and the early missionaries changed their allegiance from being uh, shepherds to indigenous peoples to becoming shepherds to the new settlers, and then from then on uh, involved mainly in what I would call the settler church. That all changed around the mid-1980s, and particularly in 1990, uh, with the 150th commemoration of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. And I want to read to you a speech by uh, the Bishop of uh, Aotearoa, Whakahuhu Virko, a man who was uh, selected to speak at the commemoration at Waitangi before the Queen and before the Crown and before all the assembled guests. Now, Whakahuhu Virko was not a political bishop. In fact, he didn't have a very big reputation amongst the radicals of the time. And when he started speaking, in fact, he was booed and booed and booed by the, by the radicals who were all around. And then he got up and he spoke some of it extemporaneously, which I think is a prophetic message. And I believe it's a message that even though it was in 1990, still resonates today. And I'm going to read it to you. It's not long. I want to quote from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. It is much more expressive in Māori and I take liberties with the scripture. I te tahi o ngā wahi o waitangi noho ana tātou i reira. Ā, e tangi ana o tātou ka mahara ki a hiro. By the waters of Waitangi, now you know that Waitangi means the weeping waters. By the waters of Waitangi we sat down and we cried when we remembered Zion. Some of us have come here to celebrate, some to commemorate, some to commiserate, but some to remember what happened on this sacred ground. We have come to this sacred ground because our tipuna left us this ground. 150 years ago in this place, a covenant was made between two people a unique and unusual circumstance. Some of us have come here to remember what our tūpuna said on this ground, but since the signing of that treaty 150 years ago, I want to remind our partner that you have marginalised us. You have not honoured the treaty. <clears throat> we have not honoured each other in the promises that we have made on this sacred ground. Since 1840, the partner that has been marginalised is me. The language is yours, the custom is yours, the media by which we tell the whole world is yours. What I came here for is to renew ties that made us a nation in 1840. I don't want to debate the treaty. I don't want to renegotiate the treaty. I want the treaty to stand firmly as the unity, the means by which we are one nation. As I remember the songs of our land, as I remember the history of our land, I weep here on the shores of the Bay of Islands. May God grant us the courage to be honest with one another, to be sincere with one another, and to above all love one another in the strength of God. So I come to the waters of Waitangi to weep for what could have been a unique document in the history of the world of indigenous people against the Pākehā. And I still have the hope that we can do it. Let us sit and listen to one another. So what is our response uh, to this mamai, uh, to this pain, to this acknowledgement of a broken covenant? 
as I said at the beginning, I want to suggest that the treaty is and possesses the opportunity for being a reconciliatory covenant. As I said earlier, it's an enlightened covenant that emerged from the spiritual awakening. It emerged out of revival, evangelical revival. The heart to treat all peoples as made in the image of God was diametrically different than what was before. And as I began, I want to say that it's a form of reconciliation occurs when Pākehā recognise, embrace, return to the covenant of the treaty. There is a covenant in the land. That's one of the things that we need to come to terms with. We need to come to terms with that. And we need to ask the question, is that something that interests God? Do covenants matter to God? I'm not talking about covenants that are made between God and us. I'm actually talking about covenants that are made between people. Marriage covenants, for example, do they matter to God? These are questions that we need to ask. You've heard talk of the Gibeonite Treaty, where 500 years later, God uh, judged Israel for breaking a treaty, even though it was made in, an, in uh, devious ways. I've talked to you about Naboth's vineyard. And I want to suggest that God does take treaties seriously. For us to do something about it and for us to be involved over this little article, three-article treaty, I want to propose that we need what's called prophetic imaginings. We need prophetic imagination. So technically, you know, you have this document that's now stored in a special building in Wellington between the Crown and, 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 uh, and Māori Rangatera many years ago. It's a document. It could be a lifeless document, but by the Spirit, it could be infused with a life that actually would enable us to live in this land in a way that would be unique. Those that signed were representatives of their people. We need to ask, how should these two peoples relate to each other? And as I said, it's not just a matter of looking at the bare bones of the treaty. It's like looking at the Bible, you know, just as bare verses. It has a life to it. And I want to suggest that we as, a, as the church have a role to play in this prophetic imagining. In fact, that's one of my deep burdens at this time. If we look at the treaty as a covenantal union... And we remember the words of Hobson's that have been variously interpreted, but Hobson was under the influence of, his, of an evangelical background. There's strong evidence to suggest that he actually had uh, some ideas from the New Testament when he was talking about this uh, in greeting to the chiefs when he says, hey, we are now one people. For me, this we are now one people Two people coming together, Gentile, Jew, man, woman, into as one flesh. Reminds me of something that Jesus says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man 
tear asunder. So what I'm doing is using a prophetic imagination here. I'm drawing a line between a political covenant and the covenant of marriage and saying that there is a similarity between the two that can help us prophetically imagine how do we then live in the light of this kind of a covenant. How do one people live, how, or how do two people live as one? Now, if you're married, you know that that's a big challenge. <laughs> it has a lot of... It's not a new idea. There was a, a, a prophet, uh, his name was Tukuti, and he said this, no longer will they call you deserted. He's talking about this land. This was in 1870. Or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hefzibah, and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. I'm getting there now. I'm not so far from the end. This idea that I have is not just my own idea. There are others. I want to quote one from a, a, a good Baptist uh, um, historian, Paul Moon. He says, however, if we zoom out from narrow academic or constitutional analyses, there is another dimension to the treaty, one analogous to a marriage that casts the agreement in a more refreshing light. Recalling those vows made between chiefs and the crown at Waitangi and elsewhere 170 years ago is a reminder that the terms of a union between two sovereign peoples that is unique in modern history. So to conclude... I ask the question, how can this covenant work? If it is a covenant, extrapolate it to a marriage. How does a marriage work? Now, Paul, the single man, talks quite a lot about how it works. His baseline is what we call a cruciform, cruciform ethic or a way of behaving that's based upon this cross which you can read about in the hymn of Philippians 2, which talks about Jesus, who says, even though he was in the fullness of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, and he became like a servant and was, became obedient even unto death. That's the cornerstone of a marriage. He extrapolated that in Ephesians 6 and said, Submit to one another, this is husband and wives, out of reverence for Christ. Husbands are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Covenantal relationships at their very heart are sacrificial. I don't know much about marriage, but I know you don't get anywhere without personal sacrifice and yielding some of your rights to the other. So these are my suggestions, some relational ideas for us, and I'm talking about me and my people. We need to understand that the covenantal relationship of the treaty, like marriage, is inviolable, and it goes on and on and on. Pākehā need to honour their treaty partner, how? By preferring the other, by getting to know them, particularly listening, repenting for issues such as ignoring the enduring covenant, understanding the deep issues of land, 
yielding their rights and preference to the other. My bottom line to us is that the church as a mediator and a model of covenantal relationship is a great hope for this land. So finally, going back to Tatopau Namu of Lord Bledisloe, the offer of a reconciliatory possibility through Waitangi, we need to move beyond rights talk. As in any relationship, it's based on aroha. It's based on agape. It's based on love. And it'll be based on each partner preferring the other. Rights talk only goes so far. My sense is that when we come to a place of understanding the other and laying our lives down for the other and preferring them in the covenant, then we're getting somewhere. For if the goal of a covenant like marriage is intimacy, self-sacrifice is the pathway to that intimacy and leads to an ethic of knowing, preferring and prospering. Kia koutou katoa, kua mutua nai nei, tēnā koutou, a tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Why don't we just close our eyes for a moment and just meditatively think about what has been um, put before us this morning so succinctly because it's profound. 